yes, Stan just said we postponed the Nixon in China um, anniversary because of Ukraine. Well, it's not quite true. We didn't actually know, and I'll come to that mm. um, last week, that um, Russia would uh, invade um, Ukraine, let alone push to uh, to Kiev. Um, we just simply thought it was a good idea to have um, these sessions broken up. And uh, I think we would have cancelled um, the Nixon in China, not the anniversary. We have got nothing to do with the 50th anniversary in, in the sense that's a past. But I think we would have been quite right to have uh, cancelled Mike's talk, um, given this particular week in politics. And so I'll be not just concentrating on the Ukrainian situation, I will be exclusively concentrating um, on the Ukrainian situation. Now, this is going to take about an hour. Um, so this is the sort of second run uh, of this talk. Um, so my remarks at the moment are slightly disjointed, I'll readily uh, confess. Nonetheless, I think the, the major points um, will be clear and hopefully provide the basis for um, thought and discussion and debate. So the first thing I'm going to do is begin with Putin, the Putin regime. Um, I don't know anything about the mind of Putin, all sorts of silly articles in the press uh, from either psychologists or amateur psychologists telling us about his height and uh, his childhood and how he was bullied at school until he learned judo. Um, I'm not going to go and how he's been in um, power for 20 years. I'm just not going to go there. That, that seems to me to be standard course stuff. Um, I don't know when that began, but I think that was World War II um, with the mind of Adolf Hitler. And um, it's been carrying on ever since. I, I consider that sort of bogus psychology and pretty useless, just a way of um, insulting uh, one's um, opponent. Either way, what's the nature of um, the present regime? Well, I would characterize it uh, in terms of broad stroke as a KGB, FSB regime um, enmeshed with the oligarchy. Um, that means people in the inside of the regime are oligarchs, um, but it also should be added uh, that the emphasis in terms of trying to understand this particular state is very much on the state itself. So I think Putin actually uh, gave a talk or actually laid the law down to the oligarchy uh, early on after he became uh, president, basically saying, keep your nose out of politics and I'll keep my hands off your money. But if you involve yourself in politics, you will lose your liberty. And so we've seen cases um, of that. So from our point of view, um, we should you know, understand this particular system as a sort of gangster state uh, regime. It's capitalist. Um, but the capitalists um, are not in command um, of uh, the state itself. Okay, how else would we characterize present day Russia? 
while it's still, in spite of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, geographically speaking, is the world's largest uh, country. Uh, it's still a big country in terms of population. It's a very big country in terms of oil. So I'm not quite sure uh, at the moment of the precise statistics uh, suffice to say uh, that it will be up there with the United States, Saudi Arabia, um, in terms of the world's biggest producer. And then we have the question of who's the world's biggest exporter. And that would be between uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia, and I'm including gas, gas and oil. So there have been those, I think, with some justification that have described Russia as a giant gas and uh, oil station. Uh, but we should also add, I think, uh, to that, uh, that it is also a, a powerful country uh, when it comes to its uh, arms uh, industry, both uh, for the use of the, uh, the Russian armed forces, so the Navy, the Air Force, the Army. All of this is high-tech uh, stuff. Uh, I wouldn't put it on a par uh, with America, but nonetheless, it is a serious arms producer um, and only uh, matched uh, by uh, the United uh, States. So it, it produces a full spectrum of arms and the um, armaments are um, cutting edge, basically. Okay. Uh, there's also an export uh, trade um, in terms of arms. Um, but nonetheless, I think we need to understand that um, what pays uh, for this uh, arms um, industry isn't so much exports uh, to countries like India. Um, it's oil and gas. Uh, that allows Russia uh, to compete um, with the United States when it comes to both nuclear and conventional um, arms. Okay, let's take a, a little step back. Um, in terms of the post-Soviet um, regime, of course, we had um, Yeltsin and... Um, he was generally regarded as um, incompetent, uh, drunk. Uh, but the most important thing about Yeltsin was he, he agreed uh, to the Western, the um, Western economists' um, recommendation uh, that Russia undergo shock therapy. And the idea would have been uh, that you push in the market, you allow unemployment, that gets rid of um, all that's uncompetitive. And what emerges after the initial shock are the green shoots uh, of recovery. Uh, well, they tried it. And of course, what happened uh, as a result of that is the birth of the oligarchy, um, criminals, but also insiders in the regime, YCL, KGB, um, uh, institutions like that, uh, Republican governments. Uh, they all seize their bit of the action, um, often using violent uh, uh, means. So you had billionaires. Meanwhile, in terms of uh, the ordinary uh, people, you had poverty, you had unemployment, you had um, pensions, 
that uh, were suddenly worthless. And of course, instead of um, industry undergoing a shock and then recovering, what you had is massive collapse. And so in terms of um, not just um, living standards, but I, I think uh, in terms of life expectancy, what you saw is the biggest drop in life expectancy ever recorded um, in any major country uh, in modern history. So just to compare it uh, with the period of um, collectivization, the first five year plan, we all know about the starvation, the millions literally uh, that died from um, hunger and disease. Um, but if you look at the statistics um, in terms of life expectancy, uh, what you find is that that went unaffected um, throughout the 1930s. The health of the population, uh, the life expectancy of the population basically remained even. So in the 1920s, life expectancy was sharply going up. It was recovering from the Civil War, the famine, uh, the diseases um, of the Revolution, Civil War, World War. Um, in, and in the 30s, in spite of the horror of collectivization, um, things didn't go up, but they didn't go down. And what happened, of course, in the 1990s is life expectancy plummeted, uh, especially for men, uh, but it actually went down for women, went down very sharply uh, for men. And if it was bad in Russia and it was dreadful, uh, the situation in Ukraine was actually far worse. Uh, if we look at its industry, it also uh, crashed. Uh, and the difference was, of course, uh, that whereas uh, Russia had gas and oil, uh, Ukraine didn't have that. So although nowadays uh, Ukraine is the world's third largest exporter of grain, uh, that doesn't uh, amount uh, to the sort of wealth uh, that was being channeled in uh, to Russia, not least uh, when oil prices uh, are high as they are, for example, uh, now. So to use a phrase, no pun intended, um, Russia was a great, you know, a giant uh, gas and um, oil uh, station. Uh, meanwhile, Ukraine was a basket uh, case. Uh, so it might be exporting grain uh, but the population there was plunged into grinding uh, uh, poverty. Okay, so in terms of uh, Yeltsin, we all know he died, and the elite uh, in Russia, above all the state elite, um, the former KGB, basically said, we've got to stop the rot. And uh, that was the significance of Putin, former KGB um, um, officer, uh, they put him in and his task was to strengthen the state, to, to re-establish a state power, uh, both internally and externally, because of course the danger was from their point of view uh, that not only had the Soviet Union uh, disintegrated into its 15 you know, component parts, uh, there was a danger uh, that the Russian Federation itself uh, would disintegrate uh, into its uh, component parts. I don't know how many 
component parts there are, but there are plenty um, of them. We're not dealing in Russia, the Russian Federation, uh, with simply a Russian population. We're dealing with a Russian population, but plus many, many, many uh, different minority uh, populations. And so uh, in terms of under Yeltsin, what you saw is a reassertion of Russian state power and uh, where uh, Yeltsin had been beloved uh, by the West and uh, uh, viewed as some sort of patsy, uh, quickly uh, they learned that that wasn't going to be the case uh, with Putin and uh, antagonisms uh, grew and uh, grew. Okay, so What are we dealing with um, at the present time? What's the aims of, um, of uh, Putin at the present time if we discount uh, the idea, as I do, uh, that this is simply the, um, the actions of a madman, uh, a megalomaniac? Um, uh, I don't uh, buy into that uh, narrative, as I've already um, indicated. So what's it about? I think it's about stopping uh, Ukraine uh, joining NATO. Uh, that's clearly the case, but was it in any immediate danger of doing so? Um, I, don't, I don't think that's the case, not least with the situation in the Donbass, with these um, unrecognized, but nonetheless established as facts, these uh, two breakaway people's uh, republics, plus uh, the uh, reintegration of um, Crimea back into the Russian Federation. Remember, it was Khrushchev. I don't know the date, but as a throwaway, let's just make it up, 1955. Khrushchev, for whatever reason it was, says that uh, Ukraine can have uh, Crimea as some sort of gesture um, in terms of uh, the role that Ukraine played in World War II or something along those lines. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't around, at least politically conscious uh, at the time. Uh, either way, it didn't matter uh, back there in the 50s. Um, it was a piece of administrative stuff, plus a bit of show. Um, nowadays, of course, it does matter with the disintegration uh, of the Soviet Union, not least uh, because they're out on um, the Crimea in Sevastopol. Uh, you have the base for the um, Russian fleet and therefore its access into warm waters uh, via the Dardanelles. It can get to Russia's other uh, base over there in Aleppo uh, in Syria. And clearly in terms of the United States, uh, its grand plan uh, would have included not only uh, membership of NATO for um, uh, Ukraine and Georgia, uh, but precisely as part of that, uh, denying Russia uh, access uh, to the Mediterranean and therefore knocking out Russia um, as any sort of rival uh, when it came um, to the Middle East. And uh, Russia really was reduced to uh, uh, one ally, uh, and that's Assad's Syria, which nearly, nearly was overthrown, uh, but not least because of Russian intervention, not um, overthrown. Okay, so I'm discounting um, NATO. Why discounting it? Because of the facts on the ground with Crimea and uh, the Donbass. 
NATO basically is a an alliance that says if one is attacked, all are attacked. Well, Ukraine has occupied territory by a non-NATO power, so it's being attacked. And therefore, it wasn't going to join. The same applies to uh, Georgia uh, with South Ossetia and uh, all the rest of it. OK, so what else um, uh, are the aims? Well, we're told that this is about denazification. Um, I don't believe that one. Uh, are there Nazis? Are there fascists in Ukraine? Yes. Um, there are certainly militias uh, that have been integrated to one degree. I don't know whether they operate autonomously into the Ukrainian army. We all know about their presence in Kiev, in Maidan Square, 2014, and all of that. But is Putin's aim really uh, about getting rid of these people. All you need to do is look at Russia itself and uh, Putin's uh, unsavory friends, which uh, undoubtedly include fascist, fascist gangs, uh, people with extraordinarily, um, um, how should I put it, um, foul uh, world uh, outlook. So I, I, I certainly don't buy that one indeed you know, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of imagination that the first people he recruits uh, from amongst the Ukrainians could conceivably uh, include uh, such fascist gangs. I don't want to push my luck, but uh, no, I don't think that that is a, uh, an aim. What about uh, Putin's claim that Ukraine isn't really um, a nation? Well, we can go back into medieval history and, uh, you know, the role of Vikings in establishing the uh, Kievan, um, Kievan Rus and the conversion of Russia via uh, Kiev to uh, Eastern Christianity. Um, and then the extension of Poland and Lithuania into Ukrainian lands and the role of the Cossacks and um, present day Ukraine with a large Russian minority as a result of basically accident of history, you know, the deal with Germany, et cetera, et cetera. But the main question for any Marxist, and I'm not for one moment imagining that Putin is a Marxist, the main thing from a Marxist isn't medieval history. Uh, the main thing is what people think. And um, what people think at the present time in Ukraine, I think is reasonably straightforward amongst Ukrainian Ukrainians, and they think of themselves as Ukrainian. And that matters as far as we are concerned. Uh, yes, uh, we can get into what do the Russian uh, Ukrainians uh, think. You get uh, people who speak Russian, but you also get people who are Russian Russians. What do they think? Uh, I think that's a different question, uh, but they together add up, I think, to less than 20% of the population. And even if we include all the other minorities, it's clear that the majority of people in Ukraine think of themselves as Ukrainian. Therefore, there's a territory called Ukraine. There's a Ukrainian nation. It exists, whatever uh, Putin um, says. So what's his actual aim? Um, I would say uh, that this um, is about establishing some sort of um, Finlandization or a puppet regime. We, we don't know yet. Uh, that's one possibility. And maybe that will be determined by how 
um, the actual invasion itself uh, pans out. Um, you know, there are aims that people can have in their heads, heads, and I don't know which general said it or which philosopher, it could have been Clarksfitz, uh, that all one's plans uh, when it comes to war uh, change with the first contact with the enemy. So the enemy could be a pushover, or on the other hand, the enemy is no pushover, and you actually have to abandon your plans. Of course, it would be a very foolish general that doesn't go into a war with a plan. On the other hand, um, sometimes plans, often plans, not only have to be modified, they have to be abandoned. So again, I'm speculating, I'm well aware of that, but given all this nonsense about uh, denazification and uh, Ukraine isn't really a nation and all the stuff about uh, uh, going in there to protect the Russian population from genocide. Uh, no, I don't buy that one either. It's as, as a real genocide in um, Ukraine as what's going on in China with the Muslim uh, population. Yes, in uh, Ukraine, um, Russian was demoted from being an official language uh, to just another language. And in terms of um, primary education, uh, Russian was removed from the syllabus. And that matters, you know, in a basically a bilingual country with a very substantial, as I say, 20% actual Russian, Russian uh, population. So clear measures of discrimination. That's an anti-democratic uh, measure. Nonetheless, it's not genocide in the same way. I, I don't believe that about uh, China. Um, so the aim might have been uh, to install a, a puppet regime. Maybe that's still the aim. We, you know, we're still very early on uh, in the invasion. On the other hand, maybe the aim is to do a Bismarck, um, 1870, 1871. Um, you know, um, what was Bismarck's aim? Well, one to um, biff the French, uh, the threat of French invasion into Germany. Uh, Germany, he was attempting to unite Germany uh, from Prussia, a reactionary uh, country. Uh, they feared uh, French invasion, uh, but instead of that, uh, the German army, or should I say, I shouldn't say that, I should say the Prussian army with its uh, other allies from Germany was successful against Napoleon III. Uh, they knocked um, his army out of action. They surrounded Paris. Uh, Napoleon III's regime collapsed. Um, you had a new government installed in Versailles, and then you had the working class uh, take over Paris um, with the National Guard. And I won't go into the Paris Commune and all the rest of it. Suffice to say uh, that a treaty was signed, uh, which, yes, gave uh, Germany, United Germany, Alsace-Lorraine, which is the German part of France. Um, if you read the literature, these people consider themselves French, even though they speak German. Well, that's up to them. In other words, this was an annexation. It wasn't um, something that uh, these people had been yearning for. We want to become German, German. Uh, they were quite content to be part of Republican uh, France. That's how they would have viewed it. They would have viewed France as being a progressive uh, country in Europe, as opposed to a reactionary country. Uh, like Prussia or Russia, an autocracy. Uh, either way, also what uh, Bismarck got 
uh, was stack loads of um, um, frank, uh, francs. I'm trying to remember the French currency before the euro. Sorry about that. Stack loads of money, um, not you know, which was also used uh, later to industrialize um, Germany. Um, either way, um, what Bismarck didn't do is install a puppet regime in Paris. Uh, he did a deal. So what's Putin's aim? My guess would be um, a deal or a puppet government or both. Um, but maybe uh, a pliant government. Who knows? Who knows? It just depends on what happens um, on the battlefield. That, that's my uh, guess. All we know at the present time, again, this is from very fragmentary, fleeting, um, unreliable uh, sources that there are talks about talks. So Putin has offered talks. And as I understand it, this is only my understanding, um, Zelensky has also talked about the possibility of talks. So maybe there will be a ceasefire um, because uh, the Russian army would be reluctant to engage in block by block street fighting uh, in Kiev and other such cities. Maybe they will simply surround the city um, and allow food in, not arms. Um, and negotiations take place, who knows? Um, but either way, the aim would be uh, Finlandization, demilitarization, um, some sort of regime that isn't viewed as a threat uh, uh, by Moscow. That's my best get, my best guess. What triggered it? I don't know. Uh, the first casualty of war is the truth. All I know, I can remember just waking up to the news that there are uh, artillery exchanges in the east, in the Donbass. Uh, and my instant reaction is, I don't know who the hell is provoking that. You know, why the stepping up of it? Is it the Russian army? Um, is it Ukrainian irregulars? Um, is it the Ukrainian army? What the hell is going on? I don't know. And quite frankly, uh, when it comes to war, from our point of view, who fired the first shot, who, who stepped up um, action on that um, unofficial um, you know, line of demarcation uh, doesn't matter uh, to us. Um, we need to look deeper at the history uh, to analyse um, a war. It, it also doesn't matter uh, from our point of view um, you know, what exactly is going on uh, in the battlefield at the present time in order to come to um, a stance um, on this uh, question. So we don't know, um, you know, um, what happened in the Donbass. We don't even know, um, you know, to what extent this was being used um, provocatively um by by either side i i just do not i just don't possess those facts and until the history books the decent history books are written um we need to be just content with saying we we don't know okay then there's the um to me uh, not difficult question uh, did we get it wrong uh in terms of various articles in the run-up uh, to this um, um invasion I would say yes, um, but I make no apology uh, for that. We're not in, and we make that perfectly clear each week, we're not in possession 
of um, you know CIA level or MI6 level of intelligence. And when uh, the CIA and MI6 via um, you know either the military or via politicians in the Ministry of Defense, Foreign Office, or Prime Ministers, Presidents, you know, uh, Secretaries of State, when they tell us what they tell us, quite frankly, I think we're very right uh, to take an extremely skeptical view. And they know people. Uh, this is the irony. So I could, I could read in the Financial Times uh, that this time they're telling the truth. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they, if they're putting out a particular line? But that's been the line. This time we're telling the truth, which tells you everything you need to know, i.e. last time they were lying. And that's precisely the problem they had. So they were saying this, this is, you know, uh, security, the securocracy. Well, how comes people don't believe us when we say all this about uh, Putin and uh, the plans of the Russian army? Well, it's simple, because last time you came out and told us about 45 minutes and how Saddam Hussein is mad and how he's just about to launch weapons of mass destruction at London and various other European cities. Uh, well, that was a lie. Um, so it's no surprise, you know, like uh, uh, the, the boy who cried wolf, that they don't believe us. So I think we were quite right uh, to take a sceptical um, attitude. As I said, we still don't really know uh, the war aims uh, of uh, Putin. And uh, as I say, you know, I've sort of speculated they could be this, they could be that. Either way, uh, the war, the, the actual war aims uh, will be decided um, on, on the battlefield um, itself. So, yes, uh, we didn't uh, predict a full scale uh, invasion. Uh, I certainly didn't uh, predict a drive uh, on Kiev. And when I was talking about that, uh, I, I still think those uh, remarks are worthwhile repeating that precisely. Yeah, I, I can believe that the Russian army can get uh, to Kiev. I certainly think it can surround Kiev. Uh, the Russian Air Force should be able to take out everything that the Ukrainians have got. So that stops uh, delivery of food, that stops deliveries of uh, um, fresh armaments. Uh, but the question is, and this is the question I posed, and which is something that Putin and his generals and close advisors would have discussed, and again, they know more than I do, what they would have said is, yes, of course we can get to um, uh, Kiev, uh, um, uh, Vladimir President, uh, Mr. President, but can we actually hold the country? And um, my precise point before the invasion was, I think it's highly problematic. Uh, I've read various commentary comparing this to Czechoslovakia 68. I just think that's just rubbish. Uh, the Czech army didn't fight, wasn't going to fight. The civilians weren't being armed. Yes, there were demonstrations in Prague and Bratislava and uh, uh, other cities and towns in uh, Czechoslovakia. But what we've got in Ukraine um, is a state uh, that isn't subordinate uh, to the Soviet Union. It's uh, the Ukraine state today is not subordinate to Moscow as the Czechoslovakian state was in 1968. We don't have a communist party in power, you know, a, um, a, a liberalizing uh, communist party. So no, no, none of that works. What we're dealing with something is something very different. And again, I don't want to stretch 
the analogy, but I'm going to bang it in the bang it on the table for the point from the point of view of discussion. If you know, if I was going to use an analogy, although there were lots of points of dissimilarity, uh, I would actually say it's nearer Afghanistan uh, than it is um, Czechoslovakia. And I'm talking about Afghanistan uh, even then. Um, on the basis that it had a PDPA, People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan army. It had uh, an official communist government when um, uh, the orders were given to um, kill uh, the leader of the Kauk wing um, of that regime, uh, the uh, uh, Amin, um, and installed Babrak Kamal. Um, so what we have in Ukraine is something far more difficult uh, it's true uh, that Ukraine is uh, ideal for tanks and uh, aircraft and swift movement. And at least in the north, in terms of Afghanistan, we're dealing with mountains and caves and, you know, good guerrilla fighting um, uh, conditions, you know, terrain. Either way, the point I'm really trying to make is that to get to Kiev, that's militarily easy, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, but to hold the country, to subordinate uh, the country, uh, I think is an entirely uh, different matter. Now, maybe uh, they're not planning to do that and we're never planning to do that. I don't know, but that's the point I made. Um, so yes, that was always possible, um, but highly dangerous, highly dangerous from the point of view of the Russian army and the Russian regime itself. Look at what damage uh, the failure and the scuttle uh, from Afghanistan cost the Soviet Union. I mean, uh, the United States, didn't it famously talking about, talked about making uh, Afghanistan uh, the Soviet Union's Vietnam. And I think that was right, it did. And, um, I'm not saying that um, that caused the collapse of the Soviet Union, but clearly it was an important factor, um, you know, in in uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And maybe, maybe that's what the United States is hoping for um, under present circumstances. More of that later. OK, so a couple of other points. How should we think, not about Russia, but how should we think about Ukraine? Well, I've already talked about it being a basket case. It's true if we look at its economy. Over the last few years, it's been recovering. Uh, it's been doing that sort of type idea. So today, yes, in terms of its agriculture, uh, it's a success. What there's left of industry, uh, I don't know. I'm sure there's some coal, um, but uh, hey, um, this is a country that was, you know, pushed to its its knees. Um, and so therefore, people were desperate. And I can well understand in those circumstances, people in Ukraine, not least in the west of Ukraine, uh, looking enviously at Poland, which had joined the EU, NATO, let alone at Germany, France, Britain. Uh, and other such Western European countries and say, what, you know, if we join the EU, if we join NATO, uh, we can have some of that. And, um, you know, hence uh, the popularity, at least amongst um, a big section of the population, 
for such a program. But at the same time, what we have is a, a Russia uh, that supplies gas, that supplies uh, oil, uh, that's a, a great power. Um, and hence, previously to Zelensky and the Maiden coup, you basically had governments that would balance off, balance off NATO, balance off uh, Russia, not do anything that would upset Russia. Uh, that would be uh, the, the aim. Well, that all went by the by with 2014. And so today, well, before the invasion, what we had is Ukraine as an associate member, not a member, an associate member. That means it's on um, at the door uh, waiting uh, to be let in in the same way uh, that if we look at Turkey today, uh, it's uh, a candidate member of the EU. Whether it will ever be let in, I, I very much doubt it. It's 60 million or whatever the population was in the past. Uh, I think that's the Turkish population. It might be much higher than that now. Uh, but either way, Ukraine, 40 million, uh, that isn't going to be easy for the EU to absorb, uh, let alone with the complications of a Russian minority and Russia. Um, Either way, the point remains. What we have is an associate NATO member, and now uh, um, Ukrainian armed forces, uh, which are half armed by NATO, half armed um, from pre, uh, well, basically from Russia and before that, the Soviet Union. So if you look at the aircraft it's got, and if you look at the tanks it's got, um, I'm, I'm just, when I look at them, I go Soviet or Russian. Um, you know, there's a MiG, there's a Soikoi, you know, there's a T something or other tank, uh, etc. Okay, so we also need to think uh, in terms of what we're dealing with now um, is not simply a breakaway Soviet Republic. What we also need to be thinking about is a country uh, that is um, subject to great power rivalry. And... Um, Clearly, if we look at it post-2014, what we're dealing with now is an outpost of the EU, an outpost of NATO, an outpost of uh, um, the United States, the United States um, hegemon. We cannot simply think about uh, Ukraine as an of itself. Uh, it isn't nowhere is uh, independent in any real sense. Every country is dependent. It's just that some countries are more dependent than others. Um, that's why we argue, for example, uh, that, the, that the proletariat need a big, powerful place uh, to come to power uh, in if we've got any chance. Uh, you know, if we, if, if we, if we imagine uh, coming to power in Scotland uh, without coming to power across Europe, uh, then we're dead. It's as simple as that. That's why uh, we don't favour small countries. It's why we favour big countries. And we would make a drive towards unity, um, you know, of the working class over the biggest possible uh, uh, territory, not least by taking the commanding heights of the world economy. That's when our project realistically can begin. OK, so let's take another uh, step and having gone from Russia, what's in Putin, what's in the head of the Russian elite, what are their plans? And we've looked at Ukraine and tried to sort of get an idea of what its world 
position in the world is today. Let's let's look at the global hegemon, and um, let's look at um, the United States and its aims. And anyone who imagines it hasn't got aims is naive in in the extreme. I think the United States will be extraordinarily pleased um, with the Russian um, invasion. Why? One, because uh, what, what they've succeeded in doing with one act uh, by Putin is scuppering um, any moves that there might have been uh, towards European unity under French-German hegemony. Um, you know, some smaller Europe or Europe, uh, you know, united through um, the methods of Bismarck. Uh, I think that that's been scuppered, not permanently, uh, but that that has been scuppered. So we've had the cancellation of uh, Nord Stream 2 um, and therefore the uh, dependence uh, of uh, Germany, France and Italy, but crucially Germany on Middle Eastern and uh, uh, other sources of uh, oil and gas that, it, that are in the last analysis under the control of the, the United States. Uh, that's really what's uh, happened. Germany, um, you know, which is the major European power in terms of population and in terms of economy, um, is in no position to project its power, its potential power into the Middle East to secure supplies um, or to secure those those guaranteed supplies uh, from anywhere else. The United States is the global hegemon. It's the main military power and it can switch the taps on or off now in a way uh, that it previously uh, couldn't. Uh, because what we've got is not only the cancellation of Nord Stream 2, what we've got is pledges to impose sanctions on Russia. And I don't know what the status is at the present time, but basically I've heard that the German government has agreed uh, to kick Russia out of the SWIFT, the SWIFT payment system. How the hell they pay uh, for the present day deliveries of um, gas and oil, I don't know. I think it's five banks that have been targeted. Either way, I'm going to leave that for people who've, who are more up to date in terms of the news, today's news, than I am. Either way, the United States will view this as a significant victory. And also, it will view it as at least some sort of victory to have secured a, uh, a Security Council vote. Uh, with one dissenting voice, i.e. Russia, which of course is a permanent member, which can veto uh, the resolution as it did the US-Albanian um, resolution. And there were three votes against it. And I'm, I'm not able to comment um, in much about the reasons. UAE, I've been told maybe that's to um, buddy up to China. Um, India. Maybe that's um, historic ties with Russia, arms deals. Again, I'm not in a position to comment. But China and the significance of China is, of course, that from its point of view, it upholds territorial integrity and not self-determination for minorities. And I think that is what determined its vote at the UN, its abstention, uh, because from its point of view, it's got the Uyghur population in the west and then in the east 
uh, it's got Hong Kong, uh, it's got Tibet uh, in the south, and further uh, to the, I'm just trying to get my geography right, further to the east, uh, it's got Taiwan. And um, from its point of view, all of that's China. And um, it doesn't want that messed around with um, in terms of self-determination for Hong Kong, self-determination uh, for Tibet. Uh, it doesn't want to be dismembered. And maybe, maybe it viewed, and I think this is true, maybe it viewed uh, Russia's and, and gave the nod in Beijing when uh, Xi and uh, Putin met. Again, I wasn't there, but maybe Xi gave the nod uh, to some intervention in the Donbass. As I understand it, that's what the um, deputies in the Duma uh, from the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which is, at least from what I can gather, taking its political lead from China, thought they were voting for uh, when they approved of um, the independence uh, vote. They didn't know, they didn't think they were voting uh, for a green light uh, for the Russian army uh, to move on Kiev, a move that they've condemned, interestingly. Okay, uh, nonetheless, I, I think that the, the main victor so far hasn't been the Russian army, hasn't been, um, you know, the plucky Ukrainians, it's definitely been the United States. And we need to look at the present conflict as part of the US pushback against its relative decline. Um, so yes, it wants to uh, surround uh, from the West and also from the South, uh, Russia, but also it wants to um, uh, engage uh, in direct competition with China, uh, which has a much more serious uh, power economically uh, than Russia. Um, uh, is it uh, China is a what what we've called a full spectrum challenger uh, to the United States? It's still well below the United States, uh, but Russia isn't an economic uh, superpower. It's not an ide ideological uh, superpower. Um, only China can have has that potential uh, to challenge the United States across uh, the board of power. Okay, so just lastly, when it comes to the United States, of course, what we have is testimony in the much quoted book, and I think quite rightly, of uh, was he Carter's? Yes, he was Carter's um, um, Secretary of State, I think. Again, comrades, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking of Brzezinski and his book, uh, The Great Chess Game, and what he what he outlined wasn't just the plan to take NATO up to the borders of Russia. Uh, what the great chess game ends with is the dismemberment of Russia, not merely into its uh, component ethnic national parts, uh, but into time zones. So Siberia would be cleaved off. Uh, European Russia uh, would be uh, cleaved off. And, you, you know, basically Russia will be reduced to basically the same sort of um, power uh, as modern day uh, Ukraine, something that's easily manageable, something that's easily dominated. And it's precisely 
those aims that I think we need to understand in terms of the United States and that fate uh, that Putin, uh, in his own again in his own way, is pushing back at. So, from a Marxist point of view, um, we need to look at the fate of small countries, uh, not in isolation, but precisely in the context of global politics and the playing out of global uh, history. Uh, we can't look at who was first to attack in the Donbass and therefore say, oh, well, it's all to, it's all, all these fascist militias, uh, it's all their fault. No, th that would be too narrow a way. That would be a Philistine uh, way of um, uh, looking at things. Okay. Uh, okay, I just wanted to comment. Um, I think it's in, it's worthwhile doing at this point. It doesn't quite fit in. But I did want to comment on the uh, anti-war movement in Russia. Uh, we salute that anti-war movement. Uh, and that would include people who've got illusions in so-called Western democracy and the idea uh, that if they voted for the right candidate in um, elections, the Russian people can join, you know, enjoy German living standards and uh, Swedish levels of social security, something that Rhys Mogg's dad, when he edited the Times, constantly pushed them, which, of course, was a, a big lie. But people believe it. But OK, there's a left uh, in, in Russia. I'm not talking about the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which is a very strange um, organization, uh, but it's marginal, it's weak. Nonetheless, uh, the, it seems to have taken a principled stand. And in Russia, in, in Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg, it's absolutely correct to raise the slogan, uh, Russian troops out out of uh, Ukraine, down with Putin. Um, and as I say, we salute uh, the bravery uh, of uh, those people who are raising such slogans. The problem is, and I'm just going to switch my light on because the sun is going down. I can read my, read my notes now. Uh, the problem is when that slogan or those slogans are transferred uh, to the streets of Paris, London, New York, Rome, Tokyo, um, then it becomes um, a different question. So I'm going to turn now to the left, um, in particular, the British uh, left. Now, it's true, I, I haven't gone out and studied everything. So this isn't a comprehensive survey, but it's an attempt to locate uh, the main currents uh, of thought uh, on the left around the Ukraine question. So I think you can, um, how should you put it, discern four major currents. Uh, the first one, and I think this is an extreme minority, um, is the pro-Putin. And again, I haven't read it directly. I've only picked it up. And what I'm thinking of is George Galloway and uh, his Workers' Party. And I'm guessing uh, the, um, what do they call themselves, CPGBML, um, the Stalinite um, organization, not Maoist, uh, it's Stalinist. Uh, we need to understand that. And I don't know exactly what its justification is uh, for seeing Putin in some sense as some continuation of 
the Stalin regime? Well, it is and it isn't. And I don't want to get into the ins and outs of that. Um, or whether this is simply saying uh, that, uh, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. I'm not quite sure. And, you know, it's worthwhile finding out, but I'm not going to um, you know, lose much time, um, you know, <laughs> pursuing that particular um, uh, strand. I, I do think it's minority and rather odd. Um, in terms of um, the more important strands of the left, the first one I would um, concentrate on, um, not because it's the biggest, although I suspect, depending on where you draw the borders uh, of the left, it could conceivably be. Either way, um, what I'm talking about is those who I'll dub as social imperialists. Now, in that camp, I wouldn't bother uh, putting Keir Starmer and, um, you know, the main ranks of the Parliamentary Labour Party. I simply view them as bourgeois politicians. Um, yes, they preside over a bourgeois workers' party. So the Labour Party is a combined uh, party, but the Parliamentary Labour Party is bourgeois. It's, it's imperialist, uh, full stop. You don't need to put the social. Why social? Uh, the term comes to us, obviously, from social democracy from the late 19th century and continued uh, until 1917, um, when the Bolsheviks, um, or 1918, was it? 1919, whenever the Bolsheviks adopted their uh, new title, abandoned uh, RSDLP brackets, majority brackets, central committee, tossed aside that spoiled shirt and called themselves communists in the tradition of the Communist Manifesto. But what happened in World War I was uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks and their co-thinkers in other parts of the world basically designated uh, the majority of the parliamentary fraction of uh, German social democracy as adopting the viewpoint of social chauvinism, social imperialism, and basically said that opportunism um, has fully developed itself and it's gone over to the bourgeoisie. So hence the word social, something to do with socialism, which, okay, Keir Starmer, you know, used to be a member of what was it, socialist alternatives, but he hasn't had anything to do with socialism uh, for many a decade. So let's not bother calling him or the parliamentary Labour Party social imperialists. They don't pretend to be socialists in any sense that we recognize, um, no, uh, these people are not socialists, they're just bourgeois, they are chauvinist, they are imperialist uh, politicians. But there is a social imperialist left, I hear left that does talk about socialism. As individuals, uh, you could single out people like uh, Paul Mason, um, formerly of workers' power, now of NATO uh, power. Um, he talks about uh, now, um, the West, the so-called West, being post-imperialist. What he means by that is post-colonialist. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, but imperialism, according to him, is, um, you know, sort of 19th century, maybe 20th century, but in irrelevance now. What you've got is democracy versus the real imperialism, uh, which is Russian uh, imperialism. And therefore, what you get is defence from Paul Mason of NATO, uh, of the nuclear weapons of NATO, 
of strengthening NATO, but not NATO going on distant um, expeditions out there to um, Syria or Libya um, or Afghanistan or Iraq. No, NATO should be used uh, to defend democracies. Amongst them, he would include Ukraine, Georgia, um, against the Russian bear. Um, okay. Um, in terms of organized forces, um, the social imperialist left, uh, those that talk about socialism, would also include the Alliance for Workers' Liberty. We don't uh, trust NATO, we but sort of type uh, idea, um, but they do. They do trust NATO. Um, we also have going over to that viewpoint, um, the Labour Representation Committee stroke uh, Labour Briefing uh, that is affiliated to this organization called um, Ukrainian uh, Solidarity Campaign. That's a social imperialist uh, campaign. Um, it talks about Ukrainian self-determination. And what it means by that is uh, Ukrainian integrity, uh, territorial integrity. It doesn't mean um, rights uh, to separate um, of um, the minority uh, Russian uh, population in Donbass, where it is a majority, um, or um, Crimea. And also another convert, um, which you can see the signs of, is anti-capitalist resistance. Used to call it, used to be called socialist resistance. Um, we saw them in um, left unity actually advocating humanitarian aid uh, to Aleppo. This is uh, Aleppo that was, uh, still is, dominated by groups such as Al-Qaeda. And of course, we made the point, and also did the leadership of Left Unity, much to their credit, that this is crazy because of precisely, okay, so who takes the aid to besiege Aleppo? It has to be by air, uh, and okay, so you send your transport planes over and you parachute this stuff down. Meanwhile, these transport planes meet Russian fighter aircraft that say you can't go in. So you have to put fighter aircraft up and basically then you've got a conflict with the Russian Air Force. And so what you're inviting is a big power a conflict under the name of humanitarianism. That's what they were advocating. Now we see them going full over uh, to social imperialism and talking about Ukrainian self-determination and uh, Russian imperialism and uh, all the rest of it. Now, some in that organization aren't happy and have got this equivocation or that equivocation, but unless those people rebel, um, ACR must be and can only but be uh, described as a social imperialist um, organization. We then have um, Stop the War Coalition the Morning Star um, and other such um, organizations. And I would characterize them as social pacifists. They claim to be socialists, but basically they're saying what needs, what needs to happen is that peace needs to be break out. What we need is a diplomatic settlement. And so various elements of this, this current say, oh, NATO mustn't advance any further, shouldn't, shouldn't go, it should you know, uh, close the door definitively on Ukraine. Others uh, want to go with Putin's call uh, for NATO to go back to its pre-1981-1991 you know, 
uh, borders uh, and other such uh, uh, formulations. Uh, and basically what is being put forward is the program that you can have peace uh, under capitalism. Uh, that's the program. And that presumably a peaceful capitalism will smoothly evolve, no doubt through the class struggle and campaigns against austerity or whatever it happens to be, but will evolve in the direction of socialism. And so pacifism, um, I think, is an accurate uh, description. And in that camp, and again, obviously with qualifications, I would include the, um, I don't know whether they're the, the socialist campaign group, but I'll call them the 11, simply the cowardly 11 uh, Labour MPs that signed uh, the Stop the War Coalition statement, which is just all over the place. It talks about self-determination. It talks about territorial integrity. Um, it, it, it's just a muddle of a statement. Uh, either way, they signed up to it. And then instantly uh, that Keir Starmer and the Labour bureaucracy uh, threatened them with the withdrawal of the Labour whip and their relegation to the level of Jeremy Corbyn, i.e. your career as um, Labour politicians or parliamentarians will be over, they collapsed and withdrew uh, their statement. It has to be said uh, that uh, the name John McDonnell ought to be mentioned at this point because he's both a supporter of the social imperialist um, Ukraine solidarity campaign and a signature, a cowardly signature, one of the people that withdrew his signature from the social pacifist Stop the War Coalition. I just add a caveat to that, that for people such as John McDonnell, I think the explanation, um, not of their cowardice uh, and equivocation, uh, but their solidarity uh, with Ukraine uh, in spite of NATO and everything I've said is explained by their understanding of history and in particular their own understanding of their personal history, i.e. John McDonald is Irish in background and there would be a solidarity between someone who views themselves at least having a background in a small nation that was oppressed by a big power bully, i.e. Britain, um, and um, those that are looking at the present situation. It also explains, I believe, uh, one of the leaders of the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, Chris Ford, who's Scottish, um, having his Scottish nationalism sort of mirrored or projected on uh, to Ukraine. Uh, I think that's a mistaken uh, approach to politics, but I'm trying to understand uh, their politics. But nothing excuses John McDonnell and the 11 uh, for collapsing. So my condemnation is not of um, Keir Starmer and the Labour bureaucracy for being bullies. Uh, my condemnation is of the 11 careerists who put whatever passes as principles, as far as they're concerned, uh, lower down um, compared with their career uh, as um, uh, professional uh, politicians. Okay. Then, in terms of the left, uh, we've got those that I would describe as more principled, not consistently principled, but more principled. Um, okay, so who are they? Well, I would say 
that there's uh, SPEW, Socialist Party in England and Wales. Their approach is broadly correct. Um, true that they say uh, NATO must withdraw from Eastern Europe, so a bit of social pacifism uh, there. But they're, they're, the key question that they say is that the, um, the question is capitalism, that we need to understand that it's capitalism in Russia, capitalism um, in the West, and that's our enemy, and the main enemy is at home. Uh, the SWP comes out with the same uh, position. Um, it's not who fires the first shot. Um, uh, yes, their use of the word imperialist when it comes to the SWP is crap. Um, they have to come out with this because of their um, insistence uh, that the former Soviet Union was capitalist, therefore imperialist. Um, so there's not been any change since the first five-year plan. Um, Russia has been capitalist, is capitalist, was imperialist, is imperialist. And imperialism in their lexicon is reduced to competition and rivalry between states. Well, if that was the case, then what we're talking about, and again, if you want to use the term, okay, use it, uh, but at least use it with qualification. Then you go and call um you know, the rivalry between Sumer and Assyria, I'm just making that one up, but you know, the, the great civilizations um, of the ancient Middle East or the rivalry between Sparta and Athens or the rivalry between Rome and Carthage, that was an imperialist struggle of the same sort uh, that we see between Russia and uh, the United States stroke NATO. Well, yeah, okay, in the same way you had Imperial Rome, Imperial China, yes, 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 but not in the sense that Marxists have meant imperialism, not in the sense of the export of capital, that if you look, as I've argued before, Russia, it's a supplier of raw materials, it's a military rival, but most of the money, and it is money we're talking about, that comes out of Russia, goes into property in places like LA, New York, London. Uh, there we are, you know, in Highgate, in Hampstead, in Kensington, in Chelsea. Huge numbers of big, big mansions have been brought up by Russian oligarchs. And the same is true with big country estates in Surrey and other home county places. That and buying up football clubs. But we're not talking about capital self-expanding value uh, being exported. That isn't the main, that's one of the characteristics of present day China, which I'll put aside uh, for the moment, but it's not Russia. Uh, we, we should not understand Russia in that, that way. What we're dealing with Russia is a military political power, uh, not an imperialist economic uh, power. Okay, but then I wanted to come to the question of tone. I've already mentioned um, the Labour 11 and how I think the right tone should be not to condemn Keir Starmer, but to condemn the 11 in the strongest possible terms, not as wayward um, individuals who we can have a nice chat with um, in the course of this war in order to come back together and cozy up with them uh, when it comes to the, the next anti-cuts uh, demonstration or the next anti-racist demonstration, where no doubt the SWP 
and um, John Reese would welcome them um, on the platform as if nothing had happened. Uh, I don't think that is the right approach. I think what we're seeing is a split, another split, a damaging split, but a split on the left. Uh, and what we're seeing is the left being divided uh, along the lines, not of nuance, but a fundamental uh, principle. You know, those that are social imperialists are on the other side of the class war. They're not on our side. So on a strike, yeah, maybe they're on our side. But when it comes to high politics, they are on the other side. Social pacifists, uh, they basically spread illusions. And we shouldn't criticize those who have got illusions, but we should certainly criticize those that spread illusions that you can have peace while capitalism lasts. That's a lie. And we need to call it a lie. And therefore, when I read uh, Alex Kalinikos's letter to Paul Mason, I have to say I found it disgusting. He begins his letter, Dear Paul. Dear Comrade Paul, and then his opening sentence, and this isn't done in the, you know, with the, as I might use it. Let me just quote it. You, are, you know I respect you. Now, he wasn't saying it on level I do sometimes. You know that I respect you. You got the facial sort of tone. No, it was in, on the level, you know that I respect you. It was done in a groveling way. It was done in a way uh, uh, that says, look, we've got a minor disagreement. You know, uh, you've got uh, a position in the media. Uh, you're someone I want to invite to the next Marxism event. You're someone I want to invite to grace our platforms, given uh, you know, the disrepute that the SWP got itself into over Conway Delta, et cetera. And so he, he carries on and he says, well, I very much admired uh, your book, your latest book on fascism. Because uh, you know that uh, the SWP with Stand Up to Racism wants to push that particular line that fascism, this is the 1930s in slow motion, which I think is just garbage. Either way, he then says, oh, yeah, well, except, of course, when you advocated in order to fight uh, fascism, a popular front. I mean, you know, cast your mind back to the 1930s uh, with uh, Alex Kalinikos's, um, you know, ideological roots in Leon Trotsky. OK, several steps removed. But nonetheless, think about Trotsky when he he railed against the popular frontism of the official communist parties and, and talked about uh, World War One being reenacted and communist parties going over to support their own bourgeoisie. He didn't say it in you know how much I admire you and how we've got these minor differences about it. Popular frontism is about a governmental project where you line up with the bourgeoisie. That's what Paul Mason is on about. He's looking uh, to become a minister. Maybe it's, it's hopeless, but that's what he wants to do. He wants to become a socialist minister in Keir Starmer's government. Maybe he fancies being minister of defense, the socialist Minister of Defense. And, you know, just go away and read, read, read his letter. And he finishes again with no sarcasm, comradely Alex. Now, I think that's completely the wrong way uh, for us to handle uh, differences on the left. I am not in favor of us having a live and let live, a civilized 
uh, attitude to our opponents, our enemies who purport who purportedly are on the left. These people are traitors and they ought to be treated as traitors. And I just wanted in that context just to touch on uh, the question of peace. You know, when so-called ordinary people say hands off uh, Ukraine, Russian hands off, what we want is peace. Uh, I, I'm not going to condemn those people. In the same way, you know, when I was marching uh, in the run-up and in the aftermath of the Iraq war uh, and people were shouting, peace, 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 don't attack Iraq. I'm not going to sit there and sneer at these people. And I, I, I vividly remember, for example, uh, Stop the War Coalition. I think I, I can't remember the name of the group, but they, they sponsored a, um, a recording. As I say, I don't know by who, but I think the original recording, again, I could be wrong, by Alvin Starr. Uh, back in the 60s, I think, could have been the early 70s. Either way, the, the song was war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Fucking powerful anti-war song. And I can remember comrades on the left, some comrades on the left, in my view, inexcusably sneering at that song. To me, that's equivalent of sneering at the US civil rights movement when people are singing spirituals about, you know, let my people go, you know, uh, no, that's not to be sneered at. Precisely those sentiments are recruitable to our project. And this isn't the same as leaders of the left promoting that. So it's right to criticize Lindsay German. It's right to criticize uh, um, Alex Kalinikos and uh, John Rees and others uh, and the Morning Star for peddling social pacifism. It, but it's not right. Uh, completely wrong uh, to criticize ordinary people because they pick up these. This is a step in the right direction for them, right? This isn't something that's retrogressive. This is something that's progressive. So we need to make that uh, distinction. So I'm all in favor of a dialogue, uh, interaction uh, with these people, not a sneery attitude, uh, quite the opposite. We need to respect them in the same way that I respect anti-war demonstrators on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg and other Russian towns and cities. Okay. Right. Just wanted to finish with what our demands uh, should be. Well, I have got no problem um, coming up with a demand. Russian troops out of Ukraine, not Russians, Russian troops out of Ukraine. But I also uh, would insist that if you raise that slogan here in Britain, in uh, the United States is number two and most bellicose ally uh, in this struggle, uh, that you also then raise not only the slogan of no to NATO expansion, which is perfectly legitimate, but also no to NATO, I notice uh, that in France, Mélenchon uh, has raised the slogan of uh, France out of NATO. Now, the France has got a particular history with de Gaulle and NATO. Mélenchon is a left nationalist, and I don't want to go any further than that, but that is the right sort of approach. Uh, dissolve NATO. NATO is not a defensive um, alliance. It's an extension of US hegemony uh, into Europe. It's an outpost uh, of uh, US uh, imperialism. 
We also need the slogan. We've used it quite a few times so far, and it's a good slogan. I don't know where it came from initially. Could have been Karl Liebknecht. I don't know. But the main enemy is at home. And that can go hand in hand with one I think was uh, Liebknecht, and that might have been Wilhelm Liebknecht as opposed to Karl. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, not a penny, not a man to the bourgeois army. Um, and that today would not be a person. Uh, we do not support the defense budget, so-called the arms budget of uh, this uh, government or any other uh, imperialist government. But I'd also raise in the context of Ukraine without being, this is not a magic wand, it's not a cure-all, it has its own problems, but I would raise the question of self-determination. Not just uh, for the Ukrainian nation, which I, I, I think exists, how ancient it is. Well, I don't think nations myself are ancient, nationalities are. Either way, clearly the majority of people in Ukraine believe there's a Ukrainian nation and they ought to have self-determination. They ought to be able to decide their own future. That doesn't mean that uh, you automatically turn around and say, oh, yeah, well, you can join NATO. Uh, for example, uh, self-determination has its limits, both in terms of practical big power politics, uh, doesn't have the self-determination doesn't include the right from our point of view, though, to oppress minorities. Hence, not just autonomy uh, for the Russian areas of Ukraine, but the right to secede. Would we advocate them seceding and joining the Russian Federation? I don't know. We're not on the ground. I don't know. But they ought to have that right. Um, maybe we take a side on, on that debate. I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to go there. Either way, that is perfectly legitimate. And we don't stand for greater Ukrainian chauvinism, which would say that Russian people have no right. Uh, they're really just Ukrainians. And they just happen to speak Russian and identify um, you know, against the Ukrainian state with Russia to one degree or another. And I think that's real. That's a real factor. Lastly, and I'd make this point, and this is an important point, and I'll finish on this. We're basically um, standing in the, well, we're following in the footsteps or, or standing in the shadow, call it whichever, whatever one you want, of um, World War I and the position of the internationalist left. The main difference is, of course, that if you look at Lenin's writings, um, from August 1914 onwards, all the way through World War I, he's able to say with a great deal of confidence, we can and must turn inter-imperialist war into a civil war in the fight for socialism. And he meant that in Russia as well, not that he thought you could have socialism in Russia, but Russia could spark the European socialist revolution. That's what he meant. And therefore, Russia could embark on the course towards socialism. You cannot say that now. And it's interesting. When I was reading Alex Kalinikos, it, it, it's least refreshing in terms of there's a degree of modesty there when he turns around to Paul Mason and says, well, our problem is, of course, uh, that the left is nothing, that the left is weak. It's divided. Um, he doesn't elaborate, but basically that's what he's saying that we do not have a single party on the planet uh, that is worthy of the name a workers' party. And therefore, you know, what we're doing at the present time 
is a moral stance and we're taking a moral position. And therefore what we're doing basically is um, standing in the shadow, following in the footsteps or whatever you want to call it, less of Lenin in terms of that call uh, to turn this particular conflict, both in Russia and in Ukraine into a civil war for socialism. Where's the party? It's not the communist party of the Russian Federation. <laughs> I don't think so. Somehow don't see that party uh, doing that, but it's much more in the tradition of Liebknecht, and we're talking about Wilhelm Liebknecht and uh, Babel, who were members of, I don't know what parliament it was, was it the South German Federation Parliament, pre-German unification, just, uh, this is in the midst of the um, Franco-Prussian War, of where they vote against war credits, they vote against the budget, and they condemn Bismarck's war. Bismarck's war, remember, not just Napoleon III. And if you look at Marx, Marx and Engels in London were going, well, um, Bismarck, um, well, he's carrying out a progressive war. It's Napoleon that threatens German unity. Either way, we can look at the ins and outs of uh, the Prussian uh, uh, French war. The point is uh, that Babel and Liebknecht voted and they were also sentenced to five years imprisonment as a result of their opposition uh, to the Prussian war against France. And it's that that we admire, uh, not uh, the cowardly 11 or the social pacifists, let alone the social uh, imperialists. And it's from that, from that stance, uh, that uh, Liebknecht and Babel were able uh, to move their party, the Eisenacher party, forward. And we can get into the ins and outs of their unity with the Lasallian, should they, shouldn't they. But it was from that stance that they were able to move towards a mass party um, from, nine, uh, from 1875 um, onwards, which then became the model uh, that was copied in France, in Italy, Spain, uh, Britain, the United States, Russia, and uh, parties on the model of the German SDP organizationally, but also politically uh, with its program, uh, became the weapon uh, that Lenin still saw uh, in terms of its mass support uh, that could be re-equipped with a new leadership uh, and precisely used to realize the resolutions of Stuttgart and Baal uh, about turning uh, a war, an imperialist war, into a struggle uh, for socialism. So we admit our weakness. Uh, we're, re we're, we're well aware of our weakness. What we represent is a viewpoint. It's a moral stance. Um, but nonetheless, it's absolutely essential for the left to take a correct stance, and those that don't betray uh, the cause of socialism.